Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Morning, Harvest KL. Uh, it's a privilege uh, to be here again and to preach from God's Word. Uh, today, we're looking at a really famous passage in the Old Testament. Uh, one could probably say it's one of the most famous ancient narratives. Uh, we'll be looking at Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. Just to catch you up to speed on where we are in the life of Abraham. Um, Abraham in Genesis 12, we're now in Genesis 22, this story, but in Genesis 12, he was called by God. Um, and as he was called, uh, he went. So he was asked to go and then he went. And since then, his life has been, had ups and downs of his faith. Uh, he had progress in his faith and he has regressed at times in his faith and in his walk with God. But God also cut a covenant with him and set him apart uh, through circumcision. God credited righteousness to him, even though he did not walk in righteousness. In the book of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 11, Abraham is mentioned as the model of faith. Now, is he really? I mean, he failed so often from Genesis 12 until Genesis 22, where we are today. Does he eventually get there? Well, today's passage, uh, God puts Abraham to the test. Will he be faithful? Will he pass the test? Let us read the text for today. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you, come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both off, to get, off them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both off them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abram. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything uh, to him. 
For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because of you because you have obeyed my voice so abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to beersheba and abraham lived at beersheba now after these things it was told to abraham behold milcah also has borne children to your brother nahor uz his firstborn buzz his brother kemuel the father of aram chezet hazo pildash jitlaf and betuel Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. This is God's word. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask for your grace. Uh, we ask that your grace will help me speak boldly and clearly. Uh, and Father, that your grace will convict everyone's heart so that we can live faithful lives. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this morning, we're going to look at uh, three things. The essence of the test, the call. The challenge of the test, the walk. And how to pass the test, the provision. Let's look at the first thing. The essence of the test, the call. Well, first, we know the story here is about a test. It says in here, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So we know it's a test. But what kind of test is it? Well, verse 2 tells us, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So he's called to sacrifice his son somewhere where he will be shown. So it's a test of obedience and a test of faith. Obedience to sacrifice the son and faith to go somewhere where he will be shown. Well, let's look at the first thing, obedience. Now, why is Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son? I mean, God's promise to Abraham was that he will bear a son, and through a son all his offspring, offspring will come, and he will be a blessing to all nations. Why would he now ask him to sacrifice the son? Is God pro-child sacrifice? No, absolutely not. And we can read throughout the scriptures in various different places that God is really against child sacrifice. 
In Leviticus 18 to 21, we see, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Molech was a God that was worshipped through child sacrifice. And here, clearly, God is saying, Do not worship God or any other God in that particular way. You should not profane the name of God by this kind of worship. In Jeremiah 32:35, it says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Um, Though I did not command them, nor did I enter into my mind, that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. He's saying that child sacrifice is an abomination and that it's sin. Furthermore, in uh, one more passage, which is Deuteronomy 12:29-32, we read this. When the Lord of God, of your God, cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire of for gods. So clearly, the God of the Bible is a God who is against the burning of children and child sacrifice. So why does God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Well, it has to do with the symbolic significance of the firstborn. You see, the firstborn or heir in those traditional cultures was the bearer of all the hope of the family for a prosperous future. A significant amount of the inheritance would go would be given to the firstborn to maintain the family's status in society. However, in many places in scripture God tells the Hebrew people because of their sinfulness the, the, the way they, they, they live their lives, um, the life of the firstborn is a forfeit or must be devoted or consecrated or given to him. We see that in, already in the beginnings of scripture in the story of Abel where he's supposed to give the first fruits to God. Or a lot of times God asks them to offer up the first lamb or the first calf to other nations or the nations will have to give that to God. One of the most famous stories is the story in Exodus. Uh, just to mention one, God in the last plague to the Egyptians um, tells everyone that the angel of death would come to strike upon the firstborn of the Jews and the Egyptians unless they slaughter a substitute which will be known later on as the Passover lamb. God often demands the first fruits as an offering or the firstborn of a flock for what it represents, all hope and all future, all prosperity, all inheritance. So in that sense, God is not asking to murder a child, but to offer up everything that defines your worth and value. One author wrote that if Abraham would have heard God say, kill Sarah, he would have not done it. If he would have said, go and sacrifice your wife, he wouldn't have done it. He would have thought he's hallucinating because culturally there's no significance about offering up your wife. The firstborn 
is given to God. So the question is, is it just? Is it just that God will demand such a thing? And of course it is. God created everything. He owns everything and he can demand anything that we own. And he can demand anything that he owns. Also, the word here is burnt offering. And sacrifice is usually to, so a burnt offering sacrifice is usually paid, used to use to pay a debt. Uh, to pay the price or ransom for not honoring or transgressing God's law. Uh, the wages of sin is death, so we know. So we think, think about all this in a very individualistic nature. However, back then, everything was taught in a much more communal way. Scripture is written in a very communal way. And the sin of a family, therefore, or sin of a nation, therefore, demands death, because the wages of sin is death. So, in a more communal sense, the offering of the firstborn would be absolutely just to pay the penalty for a whole family, or a people, or a nation. Another author said this, when God said that the, the child heir's life belonged to him unless a ransom, he was saying in the most vivid way possible that every family on earth owes a debt to eternal justice, the debt of sin. A burnt offering is a sacrifice offered up to God as an act of complete worship and submission to God, an understanding that all belongs to Him, that we owe everything and therefore He can demand everything. So why does God ask for Isaac? Well, look at the way the scripture here says it. It says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's a, it's a threefold statement about Isaac that he's the only son, that he's a son, and then he's the one that Abraham loves. You see, now you might be thinking, is, is Isaac the only son? Doesn't he also have Ishmael as a son? And isn't actually Ishmael the firstborn? Well, Ishmael by this time was already cast out. So, in a way, now all the hope and all the value and all the worth that Abraham has and all the promises of being a great nation falls on Isaac. And that's what Isaac represents. He represents all hope. He represents the promise. He represents all the identity that Abraham has for a future. Everything of worth and value. So is it just? for him to have to offer up Isaac? Yes, it is, because it's all given to him by God. Isaac was a miracle child given to Abraham uh, in that way. So it's, it's, it's perfectly just. It was through God's provision. And also, Abraham had failed God so very often. Just in the chapter before us, Abraham tried to give again his wife Sarah to a king to protect himself. <laughs> this is not the first time he did it, but what's the second time he did it? To offer his wife up to save himself. Also, one main reason why we know that this is just is because in the whole narrative, Abraham never questions God's justice. He doesn't say, God, why are you being so unfair? No, he never questions it. Abraham knew that all he had is because of God's providence. So it would be just for God to ask him of 
anything. Abraham does not question God's justice. He trusted that God was just. And in the same way, we should. We should trust that God is just. Now, I would also like to bring to your attention that this call here is very similar to the call that Abraham received in Genesis 12, the initial call. The initial call says, leave your home. Go to a nation, go to a place that I will show you. Here, it says, well, leave a place and go to a mountain that I will show you. Back then, the home was everything that he had. His identity lay in a place where his family was, and he was asked to give up all of that and go to a place he did not know. And now he's asking to give up his son, whom he loved. Again, everything where his worth and value lies. Why would God ask him to give up everything twice? Well, it teaches us one thing, that idolatry shifts. The thing that we might hold at highest value today might not be the thing that we hold at, at highest value tomorrow. So in a way, God is asking us to constantly offer up to him what we hold as highest value if it's not him. Because different people at different times worship different things. In different seasons, you hold different things as most valuable. And God is asking, offer it up to me. Offer it up to me. Give it to me. At different seasons, it might be your work that, is you, that you worship. Or it might be your family. Or it might be your hobby. Or it might be some addiction. And then maybe a few months later, it's the me time that you value the most, that you're then supposed to offer up to God. First, it might be your work, and a couple of years later, it might be your family. We are to regularly offer up our idols to Him. We may have answered the first call in our lives to offer up some idolatry, but the question is, will we offer up the second call, the third call, the fourth call? Will we continue to offer up everything to God, everything that we hold as highest value? When you offer your idolatry up to God, and you realize, once you offer it up to God, Suddenly you realize there's something else. And then there's another thing ruling your heart. So then you're called to give that up also. So that was the first part of the call, to be walk in obedience. But there's a second part to this call, to go somewhere. There is an uncertainty that is demanded in the call. The test is not just doing something particular, offer up your son, but it's also stepping into a realm of uncertainty. Go somewhere where I will show you. Many of us, when we become Christians, we want to know what's going to happen so we can calculate the cost-benefit ratio of our faith. Uh, when we consider uh, Christ, to follow Christ, we ask, what will it cost me? What will I have to give up when I follow God? Or we might say differently, we say, I will follow Christ only if, and then there's a blank. And whatever that blank is, is usually the thing we truly value. Or we might say, I can continue this, or if I can continue this or that, only then I will follow Christ. However, 
being a Christian is very different. Being a Christian means to say, I will follow you, God, regardless of blank. And then let God fill in the blank. Let God determine what he's asking you to give up for him. Now, is that blind faith? No, it's not. It's an open-eyed faith, wholly and completely devoting itself to God who is just and gracious. The book of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for to convictions of things not seen. Okay, so that's a test to obey and to have faith. God is saying, do not look to anything but me. Make me your ultimate security, worth and hope. Don't trust in anything but me for your vindication or joy. Don't rest your heart in anything more than me for your significance and acceptability. Be willing to offer up everything else for my sake. Every Christian hears that call. To make God your ultimate source of satisfaction and identity. Have you heard that call? How have you responded? Now I do believe that many of us here have heard and responded. Have heard this call and we have responded. Many of us have heard the call and we have responded initially. But the challenge is the execution. The challenge is the test of walking the walk. And that is what we're going to look at next. The challenge of the test, the walk. So what's challenging about this test? Well, the act itself. Absolutely, right? I mean, it's hard offering up everything that you love, <laughs> everything that you value. But to be honest, it's even harder than just that. As you mentioned, it's not just the first call, but it's the second call. It, it's, it's a walk. It's a journey. It's a, a, a distance that you need to travel. It's not just offering up one time, one thing, but it's continuously offering up things. And it's the small decisions and the small actions, the daily sacrifice and the daily offering up that come along with the call. Small decisions of faith. Imagine how Abraham must have felt when calling Isaac, come, let's go on a trip. Imagine how, how he must have felt cutting the wood, chopping the tree, collecting the logs that would need to burn his son on. How he would have felt saddling the donkey. On the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abram said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Abraham was old and Isaac was young. That's probably why he put the wood on Isaac. Imagine the faith. Imagine what it felt like for Abraham to take the logs and give it to his son Isaac for him to carry it. Verse 9 says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Imagine Abraham again having to make a decision now and again having to do a step of obedience to then tie his son onto the wood. Walking in obedience is never a one-time act. It's a constant, every moment decision to obey and follow. Imagine every step he had to take towards the mountain. Every little step was a step of faith. Every action was a faith in action. One big act is easy, but a journey, a lifestyle, that is hard. James, in the book of James, is trying to make a case that saving faith is demonstrated by a lifestyle of works. He says this, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by the works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, just as a clarification, James is not saying that the works is what saved Abraham or works are what save you. But he's saying that real faith manifests itself in works, or let me say it differently, a visible evidence of obedience is what demonstrates true faith. True faith has daily steps of active obedience. So is that the challenge? Is that the real hard, challenging thing of the test? No, it's not. It's even harder than this. So it's not just the act of <laughs> offering up Isaac. It's not just the, the daily steps that he had to take to go towards that. But the real challenge, the real test, is not just the faith in action. It's not just the obedience in the light of, it's the, it is the obedience in the light of apparent contradiction. Let me say that again. The real test is the obedience in light of apparent contradiction. What do you think Abraham was thinking? God gave me a promise that Isaac will be my heir and through him I will be made a great nation. All blessings are based on Isaac. But here is the command of God to offer up Isaac. The command seems to be in utter contradiction to the promise. The command is upholding justice. Surely, we talked about it, it is just. But the promise is also good. And God is also faithful to his promise. So how can God be just and faithful to his promise at the same time? And so often in our lives, we feel this way, don't we? God is good, his promises are true, but my life right now doesn't look like it. What God is making me do right now why is he making me go through these things? It doesn't seem good. 
it seems the opposite of what the Bible promises me. Maybe you feel called to the marketplace, but as you live out your work faithfully and ethically and morally, it seems that everybody else who's cutting corners is progressing in their career but you. Or maybe you feel called to, to have a family, so you abstain from sexual interaction and wait for the right one. But you're not even dating yet and there seems to be no potential prospect in sight. Or maybe you, you're working hard all of your life to provide for your family and suddenly everything is being ripped away. And I'm sure that many feel like this during this COVID season. All you have worked for faithfully, all your dealings are suddenly ripped away. Is God really still good? Is he still good all the time? I don't know how old you are or how long you have lived, but if you have been a Christian for a while, you eventually came to a place in your life where you asked the question, God, if you're good, why is this happening to me? I'm trying to obey, but it's so hard and nothing seems to be working for me. And the, the situation that you have put me through in this life right now seems just so contrary of the promises that I read in Scripture. So often in our Christian walk or journey, it seems that God, who is growing us, who is testing us, who's supposed to be protecting us and building us up, is ruining us. Gerhard von Rad, a scholar, said this, one can only answer all the plaintiff's scruples about this narrative by saying that it's this concerns something much more frightful than child sacrifice. It has to do with a road out into utter God-forsakenness. For in this test, God confronts Abraham with the question of whether he is willing to give up God's very gift of promise. God appears to want to remove the salvation begun by himself from history. Hebrews 11 verse 17 gives us another clue that this is actually the biggest challenge. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So the author of Hebrews shows that this is the key challenge, the apparent contradiction. He was about to offer up everything that he was promised. That's the challenge. That's what we have to wrap our mind around. How can a God be a God of justice and a God of promise? How can he be holy and demand things and loving and give things? Because if God is not just, how can there be hope for the world? But if God is just, what hope is there for you and me in Abraham and Isaac, because we have all sinned. But then again, what about the promise? It doesn't make sense. In this state of utter confusion or God-forsakenness, how, how is Abraham finding the strength to climb up that mountain? How does he pass the test of obedience? 
How does he do it? Well, that is what we're going to look at in our third point. How to pass the test, the provision. Did Abraham pass the test because of his conviction? Because his conviction is so strong that God is just and therefore he will just morally oblige? Did Abraham push himself up the mountain simply saying, I have to obey perfectly. I have to. I can do it. I must do it. I will do it. Kind of like that, that, that train who that is trying to, the little locomotive who's trying to go up the mountain says, I can do it. I can do it. Because God's blessings are only for me when I perfectly obey. No. If he would have been someone who believed in a God who is only just, he would have caved eventually. He would have not been willing to give up his son. The cost would have been too great. Pure willpower is not enough to obey in hard situations. Your own moral code for justice will eventually run out. Now, recently I watched or rewatched the Dark Knight trilogy. It's the Batman uh, trilogy. Now, I'm not quite sure on how familiar you guys are with it. If not, you should really watch it. It's a, it's a great trilogy. But just to give you a bit of background for those who are not familiar with the Batman story, um, there's a city, which is Gotham City. And it was so corrupt, and Batman was going around and cleaning up the streets. This is Batman really simplified. But he did it as a vigilante, which means he's doing it in a way illegally by not obeying the law himself. He's going around and cleaning up the street, but illegally as a vigilante. But there, in the second installment of The Dark Knight, um, comes this other figure. His other figure is Harvey Dent, and he's the district attorney for Gotham City. Now, Batman, all along, was trying to clean up the city to hopefully not have to be Batman anymore, uh, because once the city is clean, he can just continue being Bruce Wayne. But there was, seemed to be no way out. But here comes Harvey Dent, the district attorney. He is the hope for Batman because Harvey Dent is the first guy who is a district attorney who has the power, but at the same time, he's ethical. He's morally righteous. He's doing the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the cost. He was not bribable. He's Batman's ticket out. If only Harvey could stay on a moral high ground. But the Joker, who's the um, evil person in the Batman story, tricks both Batman and Harvey Dent. And eventually, the cost of staying morally righteous is even too costly for Harvey Dent. Because he loses his fiancée. Joker tricks him and his fiance gets blown up and it breaks him. Suddenly he cannot uphold his own moral code anymore. Uh, he lost his moral code and rather than looking for justice, he started looking for revenge. It just shows that even the most moral and righteous person has a cost. Eventually you will break, and if it's only your morality that is pushing you up the mountain, that is getting you through the difficult situations, you will not be able to uphold your morality. 
Your moralistic righteousness will not get you through the journey. It won't pass the test. You will fail. So it was not moralism that pushed Abraham up the mountain. So was it the promises of God? Was it, was it him pushing up himself up the mountain by focusing on the promises of God, claiming the promises of God and ignoring the command? God is good all the time, but I won't do what he demands because I have no moral obligation to him. Well, if, if that would have been his theology, uh, to only focus on God's love and his promises, um, um, then, and that God will give you whatever your heart's desire, well, if that would have been Abraham, then he would have never begun the journey. And you would never begin the journey. Um, because it just seems too hard. If Abraham did not believe that God is holy and has a right to demand justice, he would have never begun to chop the wood. In our lives, we forget the indebtedness we have to God because of our sins. And, and if we only focus on what God promises us, um, when any form of hardship comes, when any sort of test comes our way, we will, we will just turn away. We will say, oh, that cannot be of God. And we will never grow. Everything would be relative to our perceived joy and desires. So it can't be the relativist's focus on the love of God that pushed him up the mountain, for it forgets the holiness of God. And it can't be the moralistic focus of, uh, 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 on holiness of God, for it forgets the love of God. It has to be a third way. It has to be a way that honors both. But as we said, in this case, the promise and the command seem to be contradictory to each other. So what did Abraham focus on? What fueled his faith and obedience? Well, we read in verse 6, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb? Imagine the horror of how Abraham had to answer his son. Where is the lamb? How does he answer? And the answer gives us a glimpse on Abraham's faith and strength. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham's strength and faith is put in the provision of God. It's not just the holiness, not just the command, not just the love, not just the promises, but that God was able to provide the impossible. That he will provide for the justice and for the promise. Abraham had no clue how God would do it. But again, Hebrews 11 gives us a little insight of Abraham's mind. Hebrews 11 verse 19 says, He, meaning Abraham, considered that God was, ab was able 
to raise him from the dead. He literally put his faith in a provision and a resurrection. Now, this was great faith because resurrection was, was not a, a, a thing that God did before. It was really thinking out of the box. It was really putting his faith that God could do the impossible. And he thought that, well, God would raise him from the dead. God will have his justice by killing him. But God will continue his promise by raising him from the dead. So he put his faith, not just in the command, not just in the promise, but in the provision of God. And God did provide. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abram, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything uh, to him for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, in substitution of his son, on behalf of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, God, uh, it shall be provided. God provided a substitute. In that way, the promise could be upheld and the ram took the place of the son instead to uphold the command. God provided a substitute for Isaac. Now we also know from the book of Hebrews that no animal blood would ever suffice in place for our sin, for God. But we also know that the ram was not the one who justified Abraham. But the ram was merely a picture that points to an ultimate lamb. And it was through the offspring of Abraham and Isaac that that ultimate lamb would be provided. Verse 17 says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. It's a singular offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the ocean of the seashore and your offspring, singular offspring, one person shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because they have obeyed my voice. The passage today ends with a genealogy that emphasizes Rebecca. It says, and he fathered Rebecca. And we know that Rebecca will marry Isaac. And the offspring that is talked about here will come through them. The passage clearly points us to follow the line of the family. And a few thousand years later, John the Baptist looked at the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Isaac and Rebekah. He looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the ultimate substitute for our sin. He took Isaac's place thousand years later. God knew back then 
over 2,000 years ago that he, that, that he would do this. And Jesus also went up a mountain. In fact, the area was in the Mount of Moriah. It was the same mountain range that Chronicles tells us Jerusalem was built. So Jesus went up the same mountain range that Abraham and Isaac went up. He too carried wood. He also was bound. But what God did not ask of Abraham, he surely did himself. The horror for the father to sacrifice the son was spared for Abraham because God took on the horror himself. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, as a substitute. That's how God provided for Abraham, and that's how God provided for us and anyone who can see. And on the cross we can see both the holiness of God, the command, and the love of God, the provision displayed. We see his commands and his promises fulfilled. Jesus Christ paid the price for perfect justice and through his substitution for us placed the blessings of the firstborn on us. Through him we are made clean and holy and heirs of the promise. And just how Abraham put his faith in the provision, so must we. For when we are in hard situations, we must behold the Lamb that was slain for us. And when we look to the cross, we are reminded that we have sinned against a holy God, and He can demand anything. However, we also see His love for us by providing a substitute for us. When the angel of the Lord saw Abraham was about to offer up his son, the angel of the Lord said, For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, we look at God giving up his son for us, and we can say, For now we know that you love us, for you have not withheld your son your only Son to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should perish, but should not perish, but have eternal life. He, did not, he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This is how you pass the test. For the cross, it will give you hope to walk the hard path. The cross, the provision of God, is what we need to pass the test. It, it's what resolves this apparent contradiction. It gives us the strength for the next step of faith. It is what gives us the assurance of things hoped for. It is the cross that it gives us the conviction for things not seen. 
It is faith in a God who is holy and just, a God who tests and provides, a God who we know is able to provide and able to provide his holiness for us, a God who is able to fulfill his commands and fulfill his promises. That's what helps us pass the test, faith in such a God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus crucified on the cross, your Son, your only Son, who you have not spared for us. In the hardest situations in our lives, when we are asked to do difficult things, when you put us in situations that we can barely understand, Father, help us walk faithfully and obediently by, by understanding that you are able to command anything for us and you constantly ask us to offer up everything to you and that you are worth it and that you are of ultimate value and that it's just for you to do so because you gave us everything. But Father, let us also focus on the fact that you are a God of love who has given us a promise of eternal life, that you are good. And Father, help us focus on the cross, on Jesus Christ, that helps us deal with this apparent contradiction, for it is through Jesus that your commands are upheld, and through Jesus that your promise is fulfilled. So help us put our faith in Jesus and see him, so that we can take that next step of faith, trusting fully in you, a God who tests, but also a God who provides. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.